Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everyone, welcome to Groove Text. Well, let's just start with the cliche. And just like that, my guest today is none other than Evan Handler, who is known to millions for his portrayal of Harry Goldenblatt, husband to Charlotte and father to Rose and Lily on Sex and the City, which, God, I feel old, turns 25 this year. And it's spinoff and just like that. The second season of the hit series begins streaming on Max on June 22. Acting seems to have always been in the cards for Evan, who left the prestigious Juilliard School in New York when he was cast in the movie, ready for this, Taps. You know, small movie. He has since appeared in the blockbuster films like Ransom and on TV series such as The West Wing, Californication, Power, to name a few. Welcome, Evan Handler. Melissa Rivers, hello. Good. What did I miss in your in your abridged version of your actual bio? I was bio? paying no attention to whether you, you, you hit the right notes or all the notes. I just, I just know when you mentioned taps, you'd said you felt old because Sex and the City started 25 years ago. Imagine how old I feel when, when you talk about taps. Oh, well, a lot of people, by the way, born when that movie was made and came out. Such a great movie. Oh, cool. Great. It was a long time ago. Still holds up. <laughs> I it does. Long time. And we're going to get to sex, sex in the city in a minute. But and I always think about this because my son is in college right now. You left Juilliard in 1981. <laughs> so let me just make sure I follow this straight. Okay. Wait, what's the you graduated what the from high school? Laugh about that, 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 well, no, because I, I, I am. Is that is that? No, no. I'm going to get to it. <laughs> okay. So you graduate from high school. You say to your Jewish parents, "I'm not going to college. I'm going to New York." Then finally, your mother has been revived because you say, "I'm going to Juilliard." Then you say, "Oh, by the way, I'm out of here too." Now you're super successful, but have you has your mother recovered? Uh, well, my mother passed away about a year ago. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Well, I'm yeah. not sure she's still recovered. It, it happens she to might, all of you, us. Uh, yes, but it was not a result of my career choices. Uh, <laughs> uh, so you know the story's a little more nuanced. I was I was in a I was in a hurry uh, back then. Uh, my, you know, I didn't feel like I belonged in my hometown or my high school, certainly. And this is all in ways that don't doesn't mean anything to anybody more complicated to me now because I have a 16 year old daughter who's in high school. And when I right. talk about my high school experience, it's very different from hers. And and, uh, you know, everybody's a different kind of student. Everybody has different classmates. But my whole thing going through high school was God, get me out of here. Uh, I'm living this small town where I don't feel uh, appreciated. The value system here is like all football players and cheerleaders. 
and I need to make my way to a big major metropolitan area where I will be so appreciated. And usually you, you hear the thing about like you want to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond. And it's it's an odd twist to think that I need to get out of this small town to a big city where people will see my value and 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 I, and, and I'll be a star as opposed to the guys on the football team. So uh, and, and New York City was just an hour down the road. My dad was a commuter. But right. there were a number of kids from my high school who'd never been to New York City. And which is crazy. Go. No interest whatsoever or afraid of it. You know, very the things that we're seeing now, you know, becoming sort of the, the, the kind of Americanism that's becoming mainstream. I grew up around a lot of that. Um, right. My kids screaming communist if your parents weren't going to vote for Richard Nixon. The same the same shit that you see today of people who don't even know what the word means and hurling it. It's, it's, it's just shocking that it's still happening 40 plus years later. So uh, I was actually a very good student through most of my schooling, you know, straight A's or close to it. But I decided in 11th grade, suddenly, that was it. I wanted to graduate high school that year. And in New York State, as opposed to most places, there's something called a regents and a non-regents diploma even. If you're going to go to college, you need the regents diploma to get into colleges. The non-regents diploma is for people that don't plan to go on to college. And I got the non-regents diploma and just got out after 11th grade. I applied to four schools, all acting schools, and, and auditioned for them. Um, and did, so to get back to your thing, was my, was my, uh, uh, my mother was nervous, and I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that that would have been different if she wasn't Jewish. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but, you know, they were soothed slowly, step by step. I, got, I got, actually got out of school at 17, and I did a, a year-long unpaid internship, another thing that rightfully doesn't really exist anymore. Um, because, to a point, rightfully. Well, listen, my parents paid my rent. It gave yeah. me a huge, huge uh, leg up because I started, I got an internship working at an off-Broadway theater company where they used me to read with every auditioner who came through the door. And I learned so much, you know, and I did my college auditions during that year. One of the shows that season was called Strider, the story of a horse. And it was 1978 or so. And it became a huge hit at this off-Broadway theater and was going to move to Broadway. And then the big debate became, what should the kid do? Does the kid go to Broadway or does the kid quit a Broadway show that's, gonna, that's a hit and go to school to learn to do what he's already doing? Um, and believe me, the, 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 the debates in the cast and the, the 72-year-old people who had never been on Broadway before who thought it was an outrage that I was considering leaving what they waited their whole lives for. Um, and the director, the artistic director of the theater, took me in a, in a room and said, listen, Evan, uh, you're a good actor. I would hire you to play a Jewish kid from Long Island. Uh, I wouldn't hire you to do Moliere. I wouldn't hire you to do Shakespeare. You should leave the cast. You should go to school. Um, it's your choice. But uh, I mean, and so I went to school. I went to Juilliard, although, like you said, I left early. And, uh, you know, I've made a career out of playing Jewish guys from Long Island anyway. I'm <laughs> <laughs> kind of going to Juilliard. Um, with a few others thrown in, I mean, embarrassingly, you know, stuff that, 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 that shouldn't have been done then and, and isn't done anymore playing the, the, the Spanish kid in Miami vice. Uh, but yes, so I, I had, see, I already had an agent from the days in the off Broadway, uh, play. I was, I was doing the play off Broadway and I said out loud in front of people, there was a movie casting, uh, and I told the story to my daughter just last night called hot lunch. It was about kids going to a performing arts high school. 
And I said, man, if I could get an audition for that movie, I, I know I would get a part. And the next day, the lead member of the cast, Pamela Burrell, gave me a slip of paper saying, call Monty Silver and a phone number. And Monty Silver was one of the top New York theatrical agents at the time. And he got me on a, an audition, which led to several callbacks for Alan Parker for a movie that became fame. Yeah. Um, and I came really close to getting the Barry Miller role in that, in that, in that movie. So you just brought up Monty Silver completely aside. His nephew who took over the agency is one of my dearest friends. Yes, Charles. Charles, yes. Yeah. Charles, yes. Charles yeah, and I went to yeah. college went to college okay. together. Charles is a great guy. Yep. Yep. Gotta give Charles some props. Okay, but I wanna for okay, just to rewind. <clears throat> so you've done this, you've left school to go do taps. Kind of a star studded show uh, movie, Not especially in hindsight. Yes, yes. In, in, yes. Yes. Do you look though and back go like First of all, the level of talent, including yourself, obviously, in that movie, and the sustainability of everybody's careers. Did you at the time have, I mean, I'm sure you didn't, but an inkling of looking around and go, because you'd had enough experience around people, that guy's a star, that guy isn't a star, or do you look back now and say, how did we all survive? Uh, It's somewhere in between. But no, nobody, nobody knows or knew that stuff. I mean, for some years after that, people would get together and you'd see each other. I mean, I, I didn't keep in touch. I'm good at not keeping in touch with people. Uh, There's a good skill. That's an excellent life yeah. skill. We, well, we would run into <laughs> each other here or there, whether it's a, an event, a premiere, an Emmy Award thing. And so I would see Tim sometimes. I'd run into Sean uh, and, or, or executives at the time. you know. And, and nobody knew that Tom Cruise was going to be the biggest movie star in the world. Uh, uh, and this, you know, it's funny because, uh, I, the publicist I'm working with, uh, the firm represents, uh, uh, the two Toms, um, uh, Tom Cruise being one of them. And I, I, you know, they had said that if, if, if topics come up that, that, that I don't want to talk about, they'll jump in. And I said, no, don't do that. I don't, I don't, I don't need that. And I, I gave them a safe word. Like, like I said, if I say hypothalamus, you know, then you'll then jump in and know it. I need help. <laughs> But, but I, I, in retrospect, I thought if I talked about Tom at all, I would just say the Tom that needs no last name. And, and then later <laughs> I could claim that Tom Cruise was the safe word. But, but exactly. Well, I just think, it. and it's not, even a, it's not even about him. It's just you look back and you think, God, these are whoever did the casting was a genius because A, it would, they created lightning in a bottle with the cast. And if you look back and uh, you put it in, the, in terms of the times, which was all these young casts and some gelled and some didn't. And you happen to be in one that everybody pretty much walked away super successful. You know, I'm more in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Goldman camp of nobody really knows, you know, and sometimes you do, you know, it, it, it comes together and it becomes a, a big thing. Um, but you know, Tom was the guy who did it. We all watched Caddyshack at the time. That's what was playing on the hotel, you know, back when it was just a loop of a movie all day long. And Tom right. did, a, did a great Bill Murray impression. And Tom, for some strange reason, was the only guy who could beat George C. Scott at chess. And other than that, I, I, I mean, I knew Tom was a distinct guy. Tom, the high school girls would light up when Tom walked in the room, which maybe is the biggest test of all. But yeah, but Tom, it's not even just it's not even just him. It's Tim. It's Sean. It's these you. It's these incredibly diverse and long careers yeah, is what's yeah, so yeah, fascinating. Yeah. And look, Giancarlo Esposito has worked for years and years and years equally. And, and then, you know, at, 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 
in his probably sixth decade, suddenly with with uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul is having a tremendous, you know, new moment. So uh, yeah. uh, it's one of the things that's great about this business uh, in what, all its other uh, questionable aspects. You obviously had talent that everybody, by the way, I didn't get into Juilliard. So we're going to just discuss how bitter, but I knew I wasn't going to at my audition. I didn't get it to SUNY Purchase. So, you know, the, none of it matters. <laughs> but you had to sing or at the time we had to sing in the Juilliard audition and I can't sing. So for my song, I sang the Oscar Mayer baloney song. And when I watched all their faces hit the desk, that's great. Yeah. I think so too. We didn't have to um, sing, but they did what's commonly done. They said, could you sing something? A few bars for us. Happy birthday is fine. And I sang happy. One of the hardest songs to sing, by the way, but most people have a lot of practice at it. You know what? You are the forever optimist. I like that you not, look at the world not the half, way, not the, the way glass I know half Melissa. full. Not, not the way I'm generally <laughs> known and referred to, but, but thank you. Even, but compared my, to me. Even my tag on Twitter or something, I, I describe myself as a, 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 an inspirational pessimist. Oh, I like that. Then generally with me, they just should so just say always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Right, right. That professional angst. To so, me, I, they always ask if this is the glass half full or is it half empty? And I, I'd say, to me, the glass just looks dirty. <laughs> I'm going to use that. <laughs> it, there's some lipstick on it. Um, so we're going to fast forward because obviously we all know you from Sex in the City. And then we also know you from the movies and now from And Just Like That. So you join the cast, which is completely woman-centric about women, for women, at the time, very groundbreaking uh, storytelling. Um, but you walk in and you're a man and you suddenly have to realize you'll never be higher than fifth on the call sheet because it is so dominated by women. Was that, I mean, A, it was unusual, we know that, but was that difficult to suddenly be... A, a, a with player on the call sheet when it's all women's names ahead of you? No, uh, no. I mean, for, I, I'll never be fifth even on that call sheet, but that's okay. Uh, you know, look, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever been number one on a call sheet. That's not been my, it's not been my calling card. Um, uh, it's not been my thing. Uh, and also I came into Sex in the City. Um, I guess there is one thing you left out. I was in the original cast of Six Degrees of Separation. So, oh God, I loved that. And 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 me and the group of people who played the younger people then became really close. And one of them I had already known, David Eigenberg, who plays uh, uh, Steve on Sex and the City. And Dave was a uh, uh, cast five years before I was on Sex and the City. Uh, so when I was cast on Sex and the City, it was already a huge worldwide right. thing. So I, I wasn't part of any of that genesis. I wasn't part of like seeing something go from zero to 60 or from nothing to a huge thing. I, I walked into a well-established uh, uh, world that, that I was a stranger to. So there was, there was no reason to expect or think that I would be anywhere near the top of the call sheet. That wasn't what I was hired to do. And in no, fact, I... they did a pretty savvy thing at the time that they were fairly open about um which is if they if they 
if they had, I mean, not open about the storyline because they don't release anything about that sort of stuff. Um, but uh, if they had a character that was coming on that they thought they might want to use for a storyline continuing through another season, a man, they would hire you for a few episodes at the end of a season with an option to renew for the next season. And uh, so when I joined for four episodes as a recurring guest, I had no idea that it was a test run for possibly marrying Charlotte uh, in the following season. Um, and people think I was involved in that show for years and years, but no. really it was four episodes of one season and then the last season. And and that was it. God, what an impact, though, that your character made. I knew that you joined later, but I didn't realize that it was so little. Yeah, and they, well, look, they were, that was an extremely savvy television show, I think. Oh, still. Uh, and and, and uh, I think it de deserves uh, all the accolades it's, it's gotten. Um, um, I think, you know, it probably deserved some of the criticisms that it, that it got along the way. But uh, I knew going in that I thought this was an incredibly clever thing to do in terms of Charlotte and her storyline to 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 pick up on an issue that's so key to women and so key to women of that age and of that era of uh having um you know take the woman who had the most ferocious uh uh dictum for what kind of a man she had to have and have her fall for somebody who didn't meet any of those qualities but gave her some things that she didn't expect and and uh, so I just thought that was really, really brilliant. And and I think that's why people took to it so much. This episode is sponsored by Via Hemp. Ah, uh, yes, summer, longer days, warmer nights, and the incessant chirping of crickets, reminding you that sleep is a precious commodity. Whether you need to set the mood in the bedroom or just unwind after a day battling the sun, Via has your back. Enter their Rest and Recovery Gummies, a magical concoction of passionflower, L-theanine, and cannabinoids designed to lull you into a state of blissful tranquility. With options for both the THC-tolerant and the THC-shy, Via ensures you'll find your perfect dosage for achieving peak comfort. Via isn't just about taming the sleep monsters. They've got a whole array of gummies to cater to every whim and fancy with or without THC. And they'll discreetly ship their goodies straight to your doorstep, no matter which of the 50 states you call home. Just sit back, relax, and let Via work its magic. So if you're 21 plus, you can get 15% off a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code. Head to viahemp.com and use the code GROUPTEXT to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com, V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P.com. So I have tried their Zen gummies, and I got to tell you, they are amazing. I live in a very sort of continual stressed-out state from work to being a mom to, well, just life in general. And the Zen gummies have been amazing for me. Head to viahemp.com and use the code GROUPTEXT to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies, 21 plus. That's viahemp.com, V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P.com. And use the code GROUPTEXT at checkout. Enhance your everyday with Via Hemp.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What connected, what do you think drew you to playing Harry and not letting it become a caricature? Because that's the thing is you walk that line that we understand him and all what his history would be, but you never let it become a caricature. Yeah, I mean, the credit for most of that goes to writers, I think. Um, and I think and I think there are aspects and times and moments when it probably is a caricature. I mean, the, you, good comedy can trade in caricature. I don't think it automatically makes something terrible. If there's some element, it's, I think if it's just caricature, that that it's a problem. Um, I really, uh, you know, honestly, I was much more fascinated and have ever since been fascinated in going into that in because it relates to me and my life. But, you know, there's this well-known trope and thing that happens in movies, and it's been discussed widely of uh, gorgeous women who play the not quite attractive enough best friend. Right. Uh, like I remember noticing for the first time she'd been working on it for a while, but I think Minnie Driver broke out hugely in a movie where she played the friend that wasn't quite as pretty as the beautiful girl and but finds a lover at the end. And it's like Minnie Driver, seriously, like the not pretty enough girl. And and the, the character description for Harry Goldenblatt, when the when the breakdown comes out, you go you go for an audition and there's a, you know, two sentence, three sentence paragraph long description of the character and I, I i don't remember it exactly but i think it said um um uh uh boorish unattractive and overbearing and said, nice okay it makes you feel good about yourself doesn't yeah. it uh <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and they thought we have the guy for your age went ooh, perfect well you know it, it turns out i was uh, uh I, I like to think and i think it, you know it became a joke to me anyway and the people that i know because i i was I was I was I was in my 40s already. I was I was 40 years old when I got cast beyond 40 when I got cast as Harry Goldenblatt. And I didn't I, I met my wife during the filming of, of Sex in the City. So I was like the last bachelor standing. I almost said the last virgin standing because of the 40 year old virgin. Um, right. Uh, you know, and I think I had, you know, by that time developed a, a reputation around town as, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, 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 an eternal player and a guy who didn't stick with relationships. And so it was it was it, it was funny to me to be cast as the the, the unattractive guy. Um, so you just said last bachelor standing. How much how many did, did the, the ladies get into trying to set you up and settle you down? Huh? No, that never. Not one of them ever no, set no. you up with someone? No. <laughs> That's really bad. Uh, I don't know. That's kind of an insult. I don't know. Do you, do you, I get, do you, I, like, I don't, do you do that with coworkers, I guess? I, yes. Yeah. I mean, especially on a set and you're together all the time and you all know each other so well and there's always this shorthand yeah, and you become a we family. Did, we, did, we didn't know each other that well. I was the new guy. Yeah, but still, you're cute, you're talented, you're on a show. I can't believe not one of them said, ooh, no, I know no. someone who would be good for him. What happened is I met by accidentally a woman, who, an Italian woman, 
who had only been in the U.S. for two years, uh, who was a, a, a chemist working at Hospital for Special Surgery in New York doing biomedical research and uh, was incredibly taken with her and uh, had, you know, feeling like this was the kind of person that I'd wanted to meet and, and this was an incredibly optimistic thing. And she had never seen Sex in the City and my episodes of Sex in the City just started to air. And we went on our first date and we walked from Lincoln Center down to Times Square to see a, a, a play that Stanley Tucci and, and Edie Falco were in together. And we could barely make it through Times Square because people were screaming and shouting, Harry, Harry, oh my God, we love you, we love you, Harry. And I was having this experience of one, this absolutely cannot help but have some effect on this woman. And she doesn't know that this has never happened to me before, that this, this kind of uproar is, I mean, I've been recognized for years for different things, but this kind of thing. And I started to think like, I wonder, could I, could I just turn to her and say, could we pause this for about six months? Because I had two incompatible fantasies happening simultaneously. Uh, so I, I, that kind of explosion happened for the first time just upon meeting the woman who a year later became my wife. That's pretty fantastic. That's a great story. It, it, it is. It's a great story. And then uh, it's, it's available in my second book called It's Only Temporary. The good news and the bad news of being alive. <laughs> We're going to get to your book in a minute. I, a couple more quick questions because, you know, I, I mean, I, I want to ask the obvious, which is how much input have you had, you know, on growing the character of Harry um, through the years, especially in the reboot and coming back at you know, a very complicated time and dealing with issues that are a little bit hot button um, and keeping them grounded in real. How much input have you had into into that part of the development of the character? None whatsoever. Or no, I was gonna say, or none. Yeah, nope, none whatsoever. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, well, listen, every job is different. Yeah. Um, so, and, and it can be explained maybe by talking about auditions. You know, you go into an audition and you get a script and um, sometimes you think, you know, I, I think, you know, it would be it would be funnier if I just flipped this word and that word or if I did that or there's another there's an ad lib I could do. And um, sometimes you do that and people are horrified and think, well, who does this person think they are coming in here and rewriting my stuff? And sometimes you go in and you read it word for word and the people think, well, that person didn't bring anything to it. Like some so and so came in. And like ad lib, but bounced off the walls, and that's great. So you never know what people want from you. First of all, I, I sometimes have taken to going to auditions, or when I get a job, saying, "Tell me what you want from me. I will speak your words like with every punctuation mark, perfectly, like exactly as written. Or I can I can offer you my thoughts and insight, and you know what I think all along the way, without any obligation to use any of it." Uh, but I mean, the Sex in the City, it, it seemed clear to me at that time that what was desired of me was to use their words and deliver the best that I could uh, doing that. And that's and you feel that way still now because it's got to be hard because and we're going to talk about your books really quickly is you're a writer. Yeah, I became a writer along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Which I know from my point of view, someone gives you something and you're like, oh, I could make this so much better. Yeah, that, but, that can happen. And that's that's the writer part. Right. You know, listen, sometimes something will be semi-scripted, right? So there was something that happened 
uh, 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 during, I guess it was season one of And Just Like That, where it says, you know, um, Charlotte and Harry say something like, oh, no, and could it be? And you know if 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 you know if it's if if it's something like that, I will try to come up with something that's maybe more clever than oh no or could it be, and uh, uh, in one instance last year I came up with something that made everybody laugh, and great, you know, I love that personally, you know. Uh, 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 so this season, you know, I did more of uh, taking one of the writers or producers aside before shooting something and saying, listen, you know. What do you think of this? If if you want, if you, I I could throw this in, do you think you're saying everything you want to say here and 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 offering that stuff? And sometimes it's like, eh, I like it the way it is. And sometimes they thought, oh, that's funny. Try it. Let's let's do it. And I personally like that a lot. Uh, I I I like that a lot. Listen, there are writers' rooms I know from people telling me where that gets the biggest eye roll. They just the last thing they want is actors, you know, touching the stuff up. And there are places where they love it, you know, and it's great and they like your sense of humor and they, they want it. And if I, if I land in a place where that's appreciated and that's what they want and it kind of elevates things and everybody feels the same way about it, great. That's an experience I like, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't expect it. And, um, uh, when I've worked for Aaron Sorkin, uh, I, you know, I didn't expect that he want it, you know, and, and, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, the pace of Aaron Sorkin is, I don't know how you guys do it. Anyway, um, you actually sound difference. like a dream. There's a difference between drama and comedy also often as well, in which, right. you know, with comedy, sometimes, you know, ad-libbing a thing or two here and there can can um, can can keep, keep things bouncing. I mean, I could go and do 10 minutes on discussing the working with Aaron Sorkin and picking your brain about it because of the density of the material, the pace of the material, and all the things that I think is, is another level of genius. And for people who can play it, I, I'm always blown away because of the multi-levels, so many meanings, the comedic pacing, plus the dramatic. Anyway, I could be a full-on Aaron Sorkin nerd, but we're not going to go there. You have written two amazing books. The first one was deeply, deeply personal about your uh journey with cancer and you wrote it, it, it very young why did you feel the need to tell that particular story because it was so incredibly personal well and it, and, and this came out at a time where people especially celebrities weren't talking about these things right uh it, which is why i wrote it <laughs> um, <laughs> uh i mean i didn't feel very young when i look back on it i did write that story and start telling it very soon after I had recovered. And it was, it was, it was, it was not a short recovery. Um, I, I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia, which, uh, was then considered to be incurable and, and almost always fatal. Um, you know, they'll draw distinctions between like, well, a remission is possible, but a cure is not. And, you know, terms that I take issue with sometimes. Um, but I was diagnosed at 24 years old. Uh, had the expected recurrence two years later, and then had to wait several months to get well enough to have a, a bone marrow transplant, and then a year to recover from that. So it was pretty much 24 through 29 were kind of wiped out. Um, and so that would have taken us from 85 to 89 or so. 
And it was in 1993 that I did the solo show, Time on Fire, which I really did in order to get the attention of book publishing people. Because I thought, well, I don't know, a book proposal from an actor is going to get an eye roll. And if I invite them to the theater to come see something from an actor that they know his name, then maybe they'll come see it. Uh, and it, 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 it struck a nerve and it became much more successful and, and, and embraced than I thought it would. Uh, uh, and so the book came out in 1996 because books are slow. Um, tell me about it. So, uh, and I wrote it because I had an experience that I hadn't seen described in the way that it seemed to me when I went through it. Uh, these brand name, very famous hospitals were... Uh, uh, some of them were um, um, much darker, more difficult places than I had any reason to know that they were. And the, the, the shiny, fancy facades, to me, helped hide um, uh, cultures that were very uh, arrogant and abusive. And um, I saw a lot of people getting really pushed around in ways that I, there just wasn't the kind of compassion and uh, patient-centered attention that I thought there needed to be. Uh, and, and, and I wrote it all down. And when I started to tell it, because I did it in such little pieces, I was working with a theater company at the time called Naked Angels in New York, which just a lot of my really good friends at the time had founded, you know, from John Robin Bates, the playwright, to Rob Morrow and yeah. And Parker and Kenny Lonergan and Marissa Tomei and Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh, so I was not one of the founding members, but I was like, uh, you know, very close by to those folks. And uh, they started a series where people would bring in 10 minutes of whatever they were working on once a week. And I started reading 10 minute pieces and I started calling it the oral history of me as told to myself. And I found that I could do exactly what I wanted to do. I got people to laugh at this very, very horrible stuff, then become appalled by what they were laughing at, and then forget that and laugh again. And I thought, well, this seems to work, you know, well, so I just kept at it. And and um, uh, it was always obvious to me that a key was going to be to make sure that it was funny, even if it was very darkly funny. Uh, and, and you know, I just felt like an expose was necessary in that, in that world. And, and I uh, a lot of it has changed, but I'm sure a lot of it hasn't. I mean, everybody, I, I'm, I'm, I think everybody knows has been gone to a doctor's office and, and been kept waiting too long or been told to change into a gown and sitting half naked when you don't need to be half naked or whatever the minor indignities are that, that they continue to exist through really, really serious medical treatment. Um, and I guess the main gist that I wanted to get across was, uh, you need to educate yourself. You need to be your own advocate. You need advocates on your behalf because there is no greater uh, integrity in the medical world than there is anywhere else. People have kind of come to know that and see that in politics now. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, but uh, look, I was, I was, I was, I was called for jury duty several years ago, and. Um, it was a woman had surgery on her foot and something had gone wrong and she was suing a doctor. And I couldn't believe during just the choosing of people that almost everyone openly said, you know, I, I 
I have a doctor in my family and I would need way more than 50% evidence to believe that a doctor did something wrong or that a doctor wouldn't be honest. And I thought, wow, these people are really in trouble if they if they end up in a hospital. Because I'm not saying yeah. doctors are evil people. I'm just saying if you take accountants, if you take lawyers, if you take auto mechanics, if you take hairdressers, if you take physicians, there is no greater or lesser uh, integrity in any one group than another. They are completely the same strata of humanity that you will find anywhere else which means some of them will be wonderful and devoted, but a minority because a minority of hairdressers are that way and a minority of auto mechanics are that way. The, the, the gifted are very few. Some will be like sort of diligent workers, but it's just their job. Uh, and many will be um, indifferent to incompetent to sadistic. And it's the same. Every, I don't mean, to, I, I certainly didn't mean to say that they're any worse than anybody else, but they're no better. And they're just people, and uh, that should be known. <laughs> yeah. Well, as my friend Michelle, who is also a cancer survivor, said, never forget they are practicing medicine. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And my, you can only imagine about when my mother got called for jury duty, and they went to release her, and she's like, uh-uh. I want to do this. Well, good for her. I did the opposite. I actually said, you know what? This is going to be really upsetting to me. I don't want to be in a room where this woman might have a real claim and no one else on the jury is is willing to believe it because they would never think a doctor could do something like that. I, I, I prefer to get out of here. And I'm a little embarrassed about that. And I actually uh, should have stuck it out. But um, uh, I didn't I didn't want any part of, of having to argue with these people who won't believe um, because, well. as we can see politically right now, there are people who absolutely will refuse to believe that the daddy that they've chosen to look up to uh, could have any uh, uh, bad intentions, I, no matter how much evidence is presented. You think, speaking, uh, uh, preaching to the choir. Um, back to jury duty, though. My mother, unlike you, felt that wouldn't it be fun to convince people? Good for her. Yeah, but you never were trapped in a room with my mother. <laughs> well, I wasn't trapped in a room, but your mother, I did an interview with your mother, and she was fantastic. What were you interviewing You don't her know for? that? You don't know that? No. Oh, uh, yeah, I have a huge, huge, huge admiration and affection for your mom. Oh, not a clue. Your mother had me on to talk about Time on Fire on a radio show she was doing. And I'm guessing, I don't know. Oh, she loved that show. She career, loved. But I'm guessing this she, was before your red carpet shows and stuff. Yes. 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 So I she think this was. loved. By I, the way, she loved doing that I show. I think this was when she wasn't getting television anymore and she was doing radio. And I'm not sure it was the first choice of what she wanted to be doing. But it was, I, may, I don't know if it would be the doldrums of her career. But she was doing a radio show and she had me on to talk about Time on Fire. And, you know, when you go on to talk about a book that you've written. Almost nobody has read the book, and if they ha and and even uh, even of the group that hasn't read the book, almost nobody has opened it or read anything about it other than what the publisher sends out, which is kind of the equivalent of a pamphlet you find in your doctor's office, like that says you know psoriasis is a common but agonizing condition, you know, and like that tells you really nothing, you know, ask your pharmacist. So uh, uh, it's a it's a little blip about the book and and some questions that 
feel like they're out of, you know, the back of a scholastic book. Like, you know, what do you think Boo Radley symbolizes? Um, exactly. So, so they're very unequipped and ill-prepared. But your mother knew the material, was into it, wanted to discuss it, had opinions about it, uh, 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 agreed with me about some things, disagreed about others. Uh, so it was, a, it was a great, I have a great memory of, of uh, jousting with her on, on the radio. Oh, that's lovely. That's that's lovely, and for what it's worth, she was a big fan of Sex in the City. And she's not, not your mother, the... and it's not her show, but the other person who was exceptionally well-prepared was Gail King. Oh, Gail, exceptionally well-prepared. With, like, now that we're... notes every five pages of a book that yeah. she had read. Yeah, by the way, I loved the book, and it was that all these years later, and I actually bought it hardback, full price back in the day when we had to go to bookstores. Wow. Thank you. I, yeah, thank you. I didn't know that you would have read it even today, but uh, I appreciate oh, that. Yeah, absolutely. I've read it. And, and listen, the second book I wrote with really wanting to, to talk about something that is not discussed much either because, you know, this this post-cancer life that for me is now stretching, you know, four decades and, 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 and almost four decades and more um, it, it, it was a confounding thing. Uh, uh, I came out of that, you know, imagine coming out 30 years old and you've basically been out of circulation since you were 24 and, crazy. and, 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 a, and a budding Broadway star and, and thinking will simultaneously have been prematurely aged and had born firsthand witness to where we're all eventually headed. And yet being kind of immature and unprepared because I mean, 24 to 29 for a lot of people are like prime dating and mistake making years. And I kind of lived my 20s and my 30s as, as a result without really knowing that's what I was doing at the time. Um, and, and it took me many, many years to uh, 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 give up a lot of the rage that I felt over not only what happened in the hospital, but, um, you know, I was grateful to be alive, but I still had four or five of my prime years stolen you know, swiped from me and, and, and what, what could have happened in those years and what would my career might've been if, if I hadn't lost that, those four to five years, my God, uh, or come out looking unrecognizable afterward because, uh, I had hair before, you know, it, it just, mine happened not to grow back in, in useful fashion after the bone marrow transplant. So, and, and I was bald at 29 years old when the right. only other person of that age who was bald was either Michael Jordan or actually Michael Jordan wasn't bald yet or or the 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 the, the punks on St. Mark's place you know who who meant to make a statement with it yeah um so suddenly having to wear wigs to play the age that I was and that I was still playing and and so there was a lot of fury there was a lot of rage and it took me a long time to be able to outweigh that with the gratitude that I knew I did have and should have um, and to find m my way to a life that was less connected to uh, uh, the memory of, of what I'd been through. Well, you certainly, I mean, we could go down a whole separate podcast just about, about that and surviving challenging times and, and uh, that whole topic. Um, so I know I'm not supposed to ask, but what can you tell us about the show? Because I have a potential storyline that I do want to pitch before the end of this. To me? You're going to pitch to me? I'm pitching to the universe. That's like, that's like you know, okay, to the universe. That's, that's a good place to pitch. Yeah. 
So what can you what can you tip us off? Is there anything other than we should all be watching Max starting June 22 and the clothes are going to be fabulous and there's going to be a lot of Manolo Blahniks, which always brings me great joy because I am shallow. And those are the things that matter to me and a lot of beautiful shots of New York. You know, it is it, 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 it is touchy because they never want any anybody to reveal no. anything, right? You know, they, they, they really, really want you to hold tight to that stuff. Um, it's a great season. You know, it's it, it it's it's a great season, and it is to me. Um, you know, uh, it, and just like that, this season will be uh, uh, on par with some of the best of Sex in the City, and it is a season of uh, and just like that that is extremely reminiscent of the best of, of Sex in the City. Just just happens to include uh, uh, women who are older than they were then. And a, and a broader palette of of women and gender identities than the show had been, um, but it, I really think it it uh, involves and integrates the the the, the women, the storylines, and um, you know in in all the best ways of what uh, uh, Sex in the City was was known for. Um, and by, and by that I mean, you know, there's like, you know, there's like sex stuff that happens with Harry and Charlotte, you know, and, you know, uh, 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 Sharita and Karen are going out on dates. And, and it's um, it's not just that they're the friend of they they have their relationships and stuff going on. And, uh, you know, the thing about the thing about oftentimes the thing about them not wanting me and others to talk about things it's also that I just don't know, you know, people have come to me and asked the questions that must not be asked. And, 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 and I don't know anything. And the, the, I think the complaint they have is that if I just parrot, you know, what was published already somewhere else, then it gets picked up as if it's a new story and that I reveal right. things that weren't actually even revealed. Um, if, if people knew the extent, like last season, I went through the whole season myself waiting. We, we shoot in two episode blocks of three weeks each. Mm -hmm. And each time I'd get two new scripts, I'd say, so is John Corbett in it yet? Is John Corbett in it yet? And we got to the last two, and I'm like, well, well what the hell? I mean, uh, 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 John Corbett was supposed to be in this season. So people come to me and ask me for secrets as if I don't know. And I went through all of last season waiting for John Corbett to appear, and, and he never appeared. So I, I'm not the guy who, 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 who knows stuff. Well, I mean, you, you could tell me, well, maybe you can't because you are a straight male like what your favorite shoes were of the season, but that's not for you. I, I literally, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't know that. My wife and daughter w watch the shows and talk about that stuff. And, and, or even when we're walking on the street, oh, that one had the most beautiful shoes there, and they can't believe that I didn't even notice them. Yeah. Well, that's a whole separate issue. So, okay. From writer to writer, hear me out. And if you don't think it's appropriate to take to the writer's room well, the or pitch. Michael Patrick okay. King, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is my pitch. And if you don't want to take it, I'm not hurt. I have a pitch I haven't told them about. Okay. Okay. I got, I got to look at my notes. Okay. Samantha Jones moves back to New York and pushes Shiv Roy out a, out a window so that she can marry her true love, Tom, saying... Honey, I fell for you, so Shiv is falling for us. And Tom is so overcome with Samantha's ruthless sen uh, sensuality, he makes her the new CEO of Waystar Roy Royco. I'm seeing crossover. I'm seeing crossover episodes. Yeah, but 
the only name I recognize in that is is Samantha Jones. I don't, I don't know any of the references. I don't. I, I'm. You didn't watch Succession? No, I haven't watched Succession. Oh my God. Okay. Well, <laughs> you you come back to me, it and fell I will flat with re- me, but There you go. <laughs> I will explain it to you after you've watched Succession. It will make total total sense. Well, there went that fucking joke. Anyway, but I like what you did there. I like what you did there in in, in not asking the question but bringing up the character to try to yes. see if it's like you know I could. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, it had nothing to do with that. Uh-huh. We just thought what would be the two characters that would make the most sense in this love triangle. Right, right. Because none of the other Charlotte's not going to shove her out a window. I wasn't the right audience for that. But no, you weren't. But you know, out a window on the show. You know that. What? Someone did already fall out a window on the show. You know, don't bother me with details. I'm an artist. (laughs) I'm a creative. I don't want to hear about it. (laughs) Evan Handler, you are amazing. I am so excited that we got to chat. Something we should have done a long time ago. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Melissa. Uh, It's great. great to talk to you. You are fantastic. Thank you. Ahura Media Production.